Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. That was weird. I don't know why I didn't get added to the stream right away in my own show. You'd think running my own show, I'd be able to add myself to the stream. Anyway, welcome to the show. I am Brian McWilliams. This is Electric Liberty Land 252. And I'm going to have a special guest uh, coming on the show a little bit later. I'm going to do a little fun thing for Halloween first, though. But coming on later in the show is Ashley Rinsberg. I'm excited to have him on. His awesome book, The Great Lady Winked, examines just what's been going on with the New York Times. And we talk about not only the New York Times, but also in a broader sense, what's happening with mainstream media, the narratives that they push, and the collaborations with governments. So make sure to listen to that coming up soon. But this week's Halloween, guys, and I love it. I love me some Halloween. Almost as much as I love I Trust Capital, our sponsor, which you guys have heard us talk about. They are dynamite, especially if you're looking to hedge against inflation, if you're looking to hedge against government control of your money. And as we see, there are a lot of governments trying to do a lot of things with a lot of money. And already, even Jack Dorsey's admitting that hyperinflation is coming around the corner. And of course, Jack Dorsey's got Square. He's got all the things that go into the Square, uh, you know, that little plug-in that you have for your phone that allows you to process credit card payments, etc., so he's seeing in real time how much prices are going up. iTrust Capital gives you the opportunity to create a crypto IRA. Not only crypto, by the way, but also hard metal. So gold, so silver. Having this IRA account, which enables you to put money away for your future, right? And you can buy Bitcoin as well as 23 other cryptos on this platform for the lowest transaction fees, by the way, in the industry. But allows you to buy this, put it into an IRA account, which gives you the opportunity to then protect yourself against capital gains. Biden's already talking about, let's put 25% capital gains tax on things, right? Try to tax your unrealized capital gains. IRAs protect you against that. Gives you a way to save for your future. Take that out later on tax-free, but also you can deal in your Bitcoins. You can buy, you can sell on this this exchange, whether or not you want to keep it long-term or short-term. So they give you that luxury. Not only that, but you can also get a free guide they put together laying out the ups and downs of Bitcoin, the situation in the marketplace, a free white paper that they have provided, a fantastic report I suggest everybody download. And you can get in on this service. You can start securing your future, working within these crypto markets and these hard metals markets for free for one month. But you got to go and use our promo code, which is LIONS, at the link that is in the show notes here. So make sure to use that. Go in there, lions, get involved, start securing your future. And guys, you can trust these people. They have over 1,300 reviews on Trustpilot. Best in the biz. They are backed up and insured, so your money's going to be safe. This is the way to go. So check it out. Again, promo code lions for iTrust and go to that link in the show notes. Okay, coming back in. I love Halloween. I think it's great. I know some people crap on Halloween. I know Hotep Jesus is crapping all over Halloween. Well, shut up, Hotep Jesus. Halloween's great. I don't I don't think it's just for kids. I think it's for everybody. And I think it's a fun way for people to get engaged, tell spooky stories, gather on the old campfire like we used to do before COVID. And I'm excited because I think this year, trick-or-treaters are going to come to my house. 
Last year was a little weird. I'm sitting there. I'm not wearing a goddamn mask. I'm not doing any of that. But I'm giving candy away. I'm not washing it and, uh, you know, and dunking each piece of chocolate in a uh, sterilized mixture or anything. I'm just giving it to the kids. Maybe that's terrifying enough for people. But I'm excited to have people come out. And typically, what we do for this show is I do a Halloween episode with all the guys. We do a drinking episode with everybody. And... What I did is uh, we would typically do a trick-or-treating thing where we do funny little sketches, go trick-or-treating to Mitt Romney's house. We go to the White House every year. I do impressions of Bill and Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, all the guys would chip in. I don't know why this fucking camera keeps focusing and unfocusing. It's really pissing me off, though. Sorry, that aside. Got to get a new camera. That aside, it was a lot of fun. However, this year, it's just too much going on, too many people traveling, too much other shit. So what I decided to do was just write my own little tale of, of spookiness for you, a little Halloween horror tale that I will read to you and act out. And we'll see. I might even put a little audio behind it, some spooky music and sound effects if I have time. But I've called this story, which I wrote today, so hopefully it's pretty good, A Very Social Society. Pablo walked to the corner where he used to go for milk and eggs and other supplies that were needed but didn't necessitate a trip to the bigger grocery store downtown. He nodded to other people in the neighborhood as they passed by. Masked, of course. He used to smile under his mask, crinkle up his eyes so they'd know he was good-natured, that they all lived in the same space so they might as well be kind to each other. But now, he, they, they all, walked by with a brief nod. A recognition of one insect to another in the hive. But still, he had the muscle memory, the reflex of a smile that lived somewhere in the back of his brain. The only times he saw faces anymore was online, manicured for optimal likes and comments. The Facebook app of Social Society was just for that, faces. When Pablo reached the corner, he stopped in confusion. The story he was sure existed was simply gone. Boards covered the windows and the doors. The sign was gone, and it now mirrored so many other shops that used to line the street. Papered over the plywood, Plywood were flyers and posters for home delivery goods, with mass delivery drones gesturing to their packages and assuring everyone they were safe and sanitized. These signs were mostly for show as during the panic, government had coupled these services, nationalized them, in a purge and merge that pushed out smaller competitors. This was, of course, in an effort to make a safe working environment for all, which meant any dissenting companies or employees had to be pushed out and expunged for the betterment of the whole. No one knew what happened to the expunged. The reports from media never covered it. You'd be flagged for misinformation if you asked about it when you logged into the social society portal. Their profiles were gone. You didn't try to, dare try to look for the store online or in old pictures. That would draw a flag or a penalty. You couldn't even find pictures of his former friends who hadn't gone along with the mandates. Photos weren't permitted on private devices any longer because they could be manipulated. So everything had to be uploaded to social society in order for the government to monitor misinformation and assure everything shared was accurate. He looked down at his monitoring tablet, and with a slight panic realized he was late in posting his societal update again. He already had two strikes against his account for missing his required updates last Thursday and this last Monday. His grocery costs would be inflated for two months if he missed another, which he couldn't afford. Pablo frantically pulled his gloves off in the winter, in the winter cold, and typed as fast as he could. A beautiful walk on a winter's morning to the store, he wrote an apostrophe. He wouldn't be able to show his face, but that was okay since he was outside. He took a selfie, posted with relief. 10.58 a.m. He made it. 11 a.m., 2 p.m., 
7 p.m. for Pablo's government-mandated times to update on social society. The government, all-encompassing government portal that provided news, shopping, fees and services, directions, and societal interaction. Of course, it also provided new rules, curfews, and punishment notifications. He hurried home, thinking about what was left in the pantry. Everything was hard to come by, and the goods that were there, somewhere, since the store he was sure existed was gone, were expensive. And that was if you didn't get penalized with inflation for breaking societal rules or posting content that wasn't engaging. Pablo wasn't especially good at being engaging. At home, he sat back down at his workstation, turned on the camera for transparency, and thought about his next post. His last several updates had gotten a few pity likes, random comments from family trying to keep him from going broke or being punished. His influential status was so low that he didn't know what more they could do to him. But there was always the looming threat of deletion. If you couldn't log into social society, you simply didn't exist. The whispers from when people still spent time together in person were that a deletion from SS was a deletion from life. Whether that meant expulsion from society, imprisonment, or worse, was hard to tell. As far as the web portal was concerned, no one was ever deleted because everyone complied. But he couldn't be alone in his struggle, and everyone knew someone who just wasn't there anymore, just like the store. The store! Fuck, 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 said Pablo, pulling his profile up and his last post. His selfie popped up with a caption, A beautiful walk on a winter's morning to the store! Pablo's heart raced. The post could be considered misinformation. The store was gone. It never existed as far as they were concerned. He heard the usual reassuring chime of a like on his post, but this time it was terrifying. Why were people liking this? Didn't they know they were damning him? It would draw attention now, and social society didn't allow anything to be deleted once posted. Just stop it. Just stop fucking liking it, he yelled. But the likes kept coming. Comments about how funny the post was were racking up, not from family, but from other users he didn't know. Hilarious, someone wrote. I don't understand. The sweat poured down his face, his neck, his back, and then he saw it. Thank God he saw it. His picture positioned him directly next to one of the home delivery ads. The pretty girl on the poster with the sanitized box was peeking through like she was pulling a prank just under one of his armpits. He hadn't done it intentionally, but now he'd created, he had created engaging content. He sat back as the likes rolled in, in the hundreds now. Once something started getting some attention on social society, it continued by design so the government could know what was being discussed. His inbox lit up. Another rarity. It was a message from the Social Society Benefits Committee. They were rewarding him, him, <laughs> for engaging content. He would have his groceries discounted for once. They provided him a code to give at the checkout and directions to the store. It was odd to have to go out, but the message said that the content creators, the engaging content creators, were encouraged to create more at the store and inspire others, show how good life could be. As Pablo left his apartment, he passed by a crew going down the hallway, holding plywood and posters, and he nodded, his usual nod. He made his way down the block, following the directions to the very same store he thought that he remembered. The windows were clear. The store was stocked. Was he losing his mind? It must be a different store. He must have been lost or distracted earlier, he thought. But he was hungry. He was happy, high off his engaged post, and with a smile and a crinkled eyes under his mask, he entered the store. Back at his apartment, Pablo's computer sat on his workstation as men boarded up his windows. 
The screen flashed a question mark and the words profile deleted. There you go. Not bad for writing today. Why? Uh, what do you think? A little short story for you guys kind of ties into everything going on today. Hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully it wasn't too boring. Hopefully the ending wasn't too predictable or too lame for you. But what can you say, guys? I had an idea and you got to run with ideas, right? Now, this, of course, is a uh, little Halloween horror story for you, tying into what is going on with our society, with government misinformation monitoring, with them being the arbiters of truth, with supply chains breaking down, with everybody concerned about engagement and likes, with concerned about uh, the way in which they are showcasing themselves, their lifestyles. So it ties into not only our societal cancer as far as social media is concerned, but the societal cancer of government oversight. So, pertinent. Now, what's funny is I was talking about this. This is, of course, a fanciful and exaggerated version of a story. Hopefully not going to be forthcoming. But there is another story, just a quick news bit, and then I'll get into my interview with Ashley that I wanted to mention. And that is that we are seeing, right, much like the famous movie The Purge, we are seeing violence escalate. Now, year over year, you know violence had escalated something like 35% across the country. And a lot of this has to do with not only to defund the police movement and police officers retiring early, not wanting to join the force, uh, recruitment efforts being a little bit harder to come by because police are viewed by so much population as the enemy. But not only that, but also because of the vaccine mandates, something like a third of police populations could be retiring, could be quitting, could be uh, going on strike. So now you have entire populations, right? Just before that, what is it called? Devil's Night, right? Just before Halloween in cities like Chicago, where there's already massive amounts of gun violence. These people are gearing up for a nice new devil's evening, devil's night, whatever you might call it, where a third of their police are going to be poof, gone. And idiots like John Oliver are crowing about it, saying, oh, let them leave. Who do you think is going to replace these people, John Oliver? Who do you think is going to come and step in there? Who do you think it's going to be the the vaccinated, COVID-terrified population that you guys are fostering? Because I don't think so. I don't think those people are going to go and want to be cops. I don't think anybody wants to be cops. I mean... The only way you're going to get people out there now is by doubling the salaries to the point where people just look at it as, well, I might as well do this for 10 years because you're going to offer to pay me so much. Now, who does that benefit? It certainly doesn't benefit the rest of us. It's not going to provide better police. It's going to provide people that are in policing just for the money, not for the passion of it, not for the interest of it, not because they care about the community. They're going to be interested for the money. And it's going to cost so much more per cop. The results will be worse. The costs will be higher. And for what? So you can feel better about yourself, making sure that people follow your authoritarian mandates? It's just crazy. So enjoy the purge, everybody. Now, let me tell you real quick about my other podcast, The Boring Podcast, which you guys should have checked out by now. If you haven't, I don't know what's wrong with you, honestly. I think you're a fool and a moron. Mark was just on part of the problem. Of course, you know, Dave Smith is part of another show called The Legion of Skanks. I would say that The Boring Podcast is our Legion of Skanks. It is absolutely unfiltered, absolutely unpc, absolutely hilarious. Talking about games, do we do reality TV recaps, we tell stories, we talk about current events, we bring up shit on Twitter, all sorts of fun things. And uh, yeah, I would say it's a show you will never regret listening to, unless you're easily offended, then you might. But Check that out, The Boring Podcast. And by the way, of course, you can also check out Mark's podcast, The Second Print Comics Podcast. I had Mark and Remzo on last week in case you missed it. Go back, check that out. And also, guys, I will post old Halloween episodes of this show. If you want to go back and hear just drunken idiocy and uh, and funny Halloween stories, bad impressions, uh, you can hear all those from my previous years of doing Halloween specials. So do check that out. And also... 
Check out Matt McKinley and Burnin' Daylight, another great podcast from a friend of ours, friend of the show, hilarious, literally a cowboy, not just for Halloween, mind you, literally a cowboy out there slanging liberty, bringing in stakes. So check that out, Burnin', apostrophe on the end, Burnin' Daylight, you are going to love it. So little segue music and we'll hop right into the interview. All right. So as promised, I am bringing in a, uh, a journalist. Well, I could say maybe I, I could, can't say a journalist because you're criticizing journalism in this, uh, particular book, but, uh, an author, both of, uh, of, I believe fiction and nonfiction, or is it just nonfiction? Actually, hold on. Let me, let me stop there. I'm going to redo that. <laughs> no Actually, we'll just, I'll just, I'll start it again. I'll, I'll edit it later. Uh, is it fiction okay. and nonfiction? Yeah. Both. Okay. Okay. Cool. Just want to make sure I'm not misrepresenting you here. Okay. Yeah. All right, everybody, as promised, I am here bringing in an author of fiction and nonfiction, a man who I'm excited to talk about because I have uh, not been shy about my own criticisms about the New York Times, a uh, a paper, you know, everything that's fine to print, except they tend to print many, many lies. And uh, yeah, this man has documented it and is going to tell some interesting stories. The one and the only Ashley Rinsberg. Thank you for joining me on Electric Liberty Land. Thank you, Brian, for having me. Yeah, it's uh we were just talking a little bit before the uh the show started recording here and I thought it's interesting enough that we should talk a little bit about it as we kick this off and uh before we talk about your book that has uh, come out the gray lady winked which uh mm-hmm. I'm excited to hear more about but tell me a little bit about how you ended up in Israel which is where you're currently based you're from the states but you know you started you started uh telling this tale that involved boats involved uh, what else? <laughs> sailing across the ocean in Greece. I mean, yeah. it's just, I have to hear more about it. I think people want to hear this little uh, tidbit about you before we get into the interview. Yeah. Um, I was, after college, I was sort of uh, casting about. This was right after the dot-com bubble burst in uh, was about 2002. And I got a job at the Internet Archive, which people will recognize from the Wayback Machine. If you want to search a web page from like whatever date, 1996, you like they actually save every website on the whole Internet. It's, it's gotta so got to be one of the a, most valuable tools on the Internet, by the way. I love the Wayback yeah. Machine and especially for what you're doing, you know, documenting uh, misdeeds. <laughs> it's right. always very useful to have that. Yeah, and, and that was very much that that idea was connected very much to the ethos of the founder of the Internet Archive, whose name is Brewster Kale. He was a internet pioneer. He developed some of the very early technologies that let us search the internet. And he wanted to make sure that we didn't end up with a giant memory hole, that we had a digital library for the internet. And he did it. And um so he developed this project for for he called it the internet bookmobile, which is that uh, you got a van with a bunch of quick printing equipment and a satellite dish to connect to the web. And you could download books and print them on the spot wherever you are. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of nowhere. So he actually sent me to the middle of nowhere to, <laughs> to install one of these things in Egypt. I mean, it's actually not the middle. It was in Alexandria. It was one once the, the greatest library in the ancient world was in Alexandria until it was burned down. And now there's a fantastic, beautiful library there, the Library of Alexandria, the modern incarnation. And I ins- went there to install and deliver this thing, this internet book, bookmobile to them. And it was fascinating. And it was, you know, being in such a different place, you almost felt like you're in a different time. Um, mm-hmm. I came back from, from Egypt and I just didn't want to s- kind of stay in San Francisco and eat granola anymore. So I uh, 
got a job on a boat, a sailing yacht, about a 39 foot sailing yacht to bring the boat from Italy, Sardinia to Greece. And we took now, about I, I should months. tell you, I'm a fan of the show Below Deck. I don't know if you watched that show, that oh, reality show yeah. about. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so which, which position were you on the boat? <laughs> <laughs> so this was that th- those are like really big luxury yachts. This was a very small sailing yacht. So I, I was just okay. literally sick, like literally sailing the boat, which means like raising the sails, pulling them down at night. You know, someone has to just be on the helm. It's a boat that's like barely bigger than probably the room that you're in or the listener is in. So small boat on the Mediterranean, uh, incredible experience. You know, you're sailing in the middle of the night, you're seeing the moon rising out of the sea and dolphins and uh, phosphorescence in the water. It was really amazing. And I got to the destination, which was Greece, and I just couldn't turn back. The idea of just going back and getting another job, whatever it might have been, just seemed too much of a turnoff. So I kept going eastward to Israel and uh, got there at the tail end of the second intifada, which was a very interesting time to be here and stayed. So that was 20 years ago, just about. Wow. So I guess you like it there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I, it's a, it's a weird place for, for someone who isn't from here. It's intense. Mm-hmm. It's hot. It's a very, there's a lot of energies that, that flow and circle and collide and eddy, and you just have to make your way in this strange environment. And that's what drew me to it. It was that, that crazy life, that crazy energy, um, being on the forefront of technology, but being rooted in something that is so ancient that, you know, the history, you go to Europe or some places in the US and like you see the history in DC or whatever. Here it's all the histories underground because it is that old like uh, you know there are parts of jerusalem that you do see it but it's so very interesting place in a very interesting time yeah well it's interesting you know talking uh turning our attention to the gray lady winked you know you talk about the uh the power of technology which you're know, we talking about the wayback machine and the ability to research and find all these as i said misdeeds of the past and the present um because your work with the great lady winks has been documenting how the new york times has misrepresented uh flat out lied or has coerced the public and probably uh not only the public but political machines into doing their will or i should say the uh the will of maybe people operating a little bit above them so tell me a little bit about how you got into this, uh, why you wanted to document and get into what the New York Times has become. And um, yeah, and, and from there, I actually am curious to see as well, you know, why just the New York, was it something where you said the New York Times in particular, uh, because it's the most read is the most evil, or do you think that this is something that is widespread insofar as how these things are misrepresented? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. It's both. I mean, the New York Times is certainly the most influential newspaper in America and quite possibly the world. It mm-hmm. It's sort of in a league of its own. And that is across the board in terms of the influence of its reporting, the caliber of its journalists, um, even financial stuff. Like it is just, it's bigger and in a way better because it's got that kind of reach. But it's not just the Times. So the Times, I think, is very much a symbol of the media, and it is a flagship for the American news media. I initially wanted to understand what was happening there because I was a Times reader. I still am a New York Times reader in some sense. Um, And what happened was I came across this kind of casual footnote in an 
work of history, which was the rise and fall of the Third Reich by William Shirer, who himself was a journalist during that period, during the rise and fall of the Nazis. And he mentions sort of in this offhand way that on the eve of World War II, the Times ran this story claiming that Poland had invaded Germany. And I was like, whoa, what? It was like one of those record screech moments where you're like, excuse me? Um, and I had to actually just go and find like find this story and see if that was actually the case and see if he he got it right. And I, I believed that he had gotten it right because he was a great journalist and he just he wouldn't have just put that in there. And that was indeed the case. They actually ran a story. It was the lead story of September 1st, 1939. That was the day that the hostilities were declared. And in that story, the New York Times prints this claim attributing it to a what they call a semi-official German news agency, which means a <laughs> Nazi propaganda organ, <laughs> right. that Polish guerrillas had, had attacked a German radio station on the border, and that Germany was just retaliating for the aggression that they had endured. And you, you're kind of like, well, what, how could this be? And I dug deeper. I found out that this was very much a Nazi propaganda ploy, it was called Operation Himmler. It was designed to do exactly that, which is to give just a little bit of a pause to the rest of the world to say, oh, wait a second, maybe there's some legitimacy to the German attack here. Just enough time for the rest of the allies to not counter the Nazi aggression. Because as we all know, the Nazi strategy was designed to race into these countries, into Poland or into Austria, and to do it so quickly that there was no possibility of response, even though the number of troops that they were sending in on those initial attacks wasn't that big. But they were depending on speed. And that's what they really needed to make that first foray into Poland. And having the New York Times, which was then the world's most important and influential media outlet as it is today, Having them print this claim that that Germany was just responding to Polish aggression gave it a glaze of credibility, gave people enough time to say, OK, wait, let's see if we can just still talk this through, even though Hitler and I think everybody else knew by that point, um, if they were looking at it clearly, that Hitler had no intention of talking. He really just wanted mm -hmm. to conquer. So that was the first incident that made me think, all right, this can't be standalone. This can't be just a one off thing. This is 1939. It's not 1929. The Nazis had been in power for the better part of that decade. They had already run the Nazi Olympics. They had enacted the Nuremberg Laws. They had been committing acts of violent oppression, of conquest around Europe for years and years and years and years. And there's just no reason to think that anything they were doing was in good faith. So I dug deeper into that particular incident and found that the Berlin bureau chief at the time was a man named Guido Anderes for the New York Times, was an actual Nazi collaborator. He mm -hmm. was working with the Nazis. They loved him. They loved his reporting so much that they would just read his news reports in, on German broadcasts as news because <laughs> they, they didn't have to correct it. It was just so favorable to the Nazis. So that kind of got me interested in understanding what else was happening at the New York Times then and now? And what is the bigger pattern that I could identify to say, all right, there's clearly an issue. And I think we all know that there's an issue with our news media. But the mm -hmm. challenge is to identify what exactly it is and not just to say, oh, the media is this or that. But let's put our finger on it. Let's look at the mechanisms. Let's see how it works. And that's what I wanted to do with The Great Lady Wind.
Yeah, well, and it's interesting because you have a quite a wide range of um, historical reporting that you refer to. I mean, I, I have a list here that, you know, not only from the uh, the chapters of the book, but also, you know, going from the Ukraine, of course, Holodomor um, and Walter Duranty is one of my all time. I mean, I, I think it's hard to find a better instance of horrible reporting you know, gone wrong that had such a, a massive impact on you know, millions of lives as an apologist for uh, for the Soviets. But, you know, so looking through here, just I'll just mention a couple other ones because I'm curious to see how they tie together, especially. But you talk about Walter sure. Durante. Um, you talk about the um, the Mideast reporter is the second Palestinian intifada uh, that mur- motivated the murder of a reporter, the uh, efforts to bury news of the Holocaust. And of course, also you talk about Fidel Castro in this, among other things. So, you know, so they seem on the outside looking in, you say, OK, well, these might just be disparate incidents. They're over a wide period of time. So how are they linked? And that's mm-hmm. what I'm most curious to see is how you feel that they're they're tied together. And I do think it's effective and you made this point earlier, you know, fake news is a concept that's out there, right? And and Trump famously brought it to the forefront and it has now been referred to fake news, you know, as a, both sides use it almost as a throwaway. You can't criticize reporting yeah. because, oh, they're just saying it's fake news because Trump said that. So with this book, I wanted to hear how you might tie these instances together and then also how we can put a finger on it and say this is why specifically um, these news reports are coming out in this manner? You know, what is intentional about it? Yeah, well, Durante is a great example um, in the book because Durante, there's this narrative about Walter Durante, who was the New York Times' Russia correspondent in the early 30s. And he was, I would say, arguably the most famous journalist of that day. I mean, he was really widely celebrated as we have journalist celebrities today. He was that then. And he covered up the Ukraine famine, as you mentioned. Uh, This famine is thought to have killed between five and seven million people. And it was deliberate. It was a deliberate genocide committed by Stalin, who was consolidating power in his early reign or um, his early rule of the Soviet Union. And Durante's rap is that he was just kind of this bad reporter. He's just a rogue reporter. He's like, you know, there was never been a really good explanation about why he would do this. He was a Mm -hmm. brilliant guy. He was trained at Oxford. He spoke Russian. He knew very well, he would have known very well, and he actually did, what was going on in Russia at the time. And he was on the ground there. And you have to think, what's the incentive? Like, why would any journalist give up the scoop of a lifetime? There is none. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Journalists love great scoops. They don't love to report nothing going on here. They love to report, hey, this is an insane story that I really want to get out into the world. That's what they do. So you think it doesn't make sense. And when you look at it, it wasn't Durante. And that's the story that people have missed. The New York Times has also love to put the spotlight on Durante. The truth of the matter is it was very much the New York Times who instructed him to do this. Mm. And the reason that they did this is because at the time, the question facing the United States vis-a-vis the Soviet Union was, should the U.S. government recognize the Soviets as the legitimate government of Russia? Because they had overthrown the reigning czar, the monarch, in a bloody coup, which is not an act of legitimacy as far as governance goes. It, it was very much up in the air as to what the U.S. government would do. And people were lobbying FDR as he became president in the early 1930s, to recognize the Soviets. But you cannot 
get that past the American public if mm -hmm. the public knows these people had just murdered 5 million of their own people intentionally. No one is going to see that as an act of legitimacy. Obviously, it's the opposite. But there were very, very serious business interests in the US. They wanted to resume trade relations with Russia and its 150 million plus people in a rapidly industrializing country. And these business interests were aligned with the New York Times and they pushed for this to happen. So when it actually did happen, and when Durante, who was advised by Walter Durante to go ahead with recognition of the Soviet Union, when he when FDR did it, there was a gala event in New York at the, um, I believe it was at the Waldorf Astoria, where the new Soviet Union, Soviet Union ambassador to America was in attendance and vice versa, the American ambassador to the Soviet Union and the head of railroads and the head of banks and the head of of major concerns, business concerns. And one man alone out of 2000 people in attendance that night got a standing ovation. And that was Walter Durante because everybody in that room understood that that US recognition of the Soviet Union, of the Soviet government depended on Durante having covered up this crime against humanity because otherwise mm -hmm. it just would never would have taken place. And when you zoom out, you see that that's the pattern. The pattern is that you have this newspaper, the New York Times, that is owned by a single family. It's controlled by a single family for 120 years, including then same family as today. And they have serious business interests. And sometimes their ideological interests and their business interests converge and it becomes even more toxic. But I think a lot of the time, it's really a question of follow the money. And that's the bigger picture even of the news media today where we're seeing that if you look at every major media organization, news organization today, they are somehow owned by a huge conglomerate, by a Viacom, by AT&T, by um, Time Warner, which I think is owned by Comcast. Um, that is the pattern. You have incredible amount of concentration of this power to shape reality. And it's in the hands of big companies who are uber focused on their stock price. And when that influence becomes overweening, which I think it has, uh, and you have the influence of ideology as well, then you've got this toxic stew, this mess that we have today. Well, what's fascinating to me is we talk about the ideology, right? And we know that left, you know, the media is predominantly left. Uh, there's been research about it. There's been, you know, academia is left. The journalists coming out are typically left leaning. So the ideologies kind of bleed from that. But it, what's mm -hmm. interesting to me is you've got these mega corporations, which typically people on the left tend to say, you know, we're anti corporation. Uh, let's break them up, you know, all this other stuff. Yeah. And at the same time, these journalists are working for, as you said, massive conglomerates that own these newspapers. So how do you think they, navigate having ideological differences with these newspapers. And wouldn't you think that the journalists at the New York Times would have some integrity to stand up and say, you know, what we're putting out here is pure garbage? Or do they, do they just not even know what they're being fed and what they're being tasked with? You know, there were instances and there probably still are instances of journalists at the New York Times and elsewhere who do stand up and who do make a ruckus about what's happening. And in the case of the first example, World War II, there was a an editor, mid-level editor, Jewish editor at the New York Times, who went to the New York Times' management and said, you guys have a Nazi running your Berlin Bureau. What the hell is going on here? And they threatened him with a libel lawsuit. 
And the reason comes back to what I had just discussed. The, this guy had the best access in all of Europe to, not, to Nazi sources, to top German brass. That translated into the best scoops. That means the New York Times can continue to be number one, especially at a time where the news was very financially valuable, not mm-hmm. quite like it is today. And they knew that getting rid of that guy meant losing that competitive edge, and they weren't willing to do it. And today we have people like Barry Weiss, who's a very well-known journalist who was at the Times, and she quit. She left one of the best jobs in all of journalism because she found the environment too ideologically suffocating. She was being subject to harassment. She was seeing that what was happening at the New York Times was no longer journalism. It was activism. She stood up. So you absolutely do have cases of journalists who are doing the right thing. And that's even more so today where they have alternatives. They can go to Substack. They can go to Ghost. They can do a podcast, um, whatever they need to do. And they're still doing great work as journalists. They're just not doing it within these corporate institutions. So I think that's a lot of what has happened with with those types of journalists. And in terms of the ideological uh, mismatch, I'm not really sure it's there anymore. I think the leftism of the 1990s that was um, anti-globalist, anti-globalization is not the quote unquote progressivism of today, which is very much in line with big brands, which are owned by mm-hmm. big corporations, which right. are- as long as, they, as long as they virtue signal properly uh, in their commercials and on their yes. social media. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And when you look at journalists who are making millions of dollars and producing movies and producing TV shows, and you're like, this doesn't feel like that kind of leftist journalism that we once knew. And there still are examples. Look at Glenn Greenwald as a great example of someone who's kind of hewed to his ideological commitments. And I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but I respect what he's doing because it's intellectually honest where I think we're seeing a lot of people just doing the same thing that their corporate parents are doing, which is chasing the money, going for going with the narrative that is producing the least amount of resistance that they're just, it's an easy sell to sell squishy values, no matter what the cost to society. And I think that's what we're seeing. Well, let's turn to uh, the New York Times and the 1619 Project. I know that's another thing that you documented in your book. So let's talk a little bit about that and that pivot, which the New York Times, at least in the past, they always were left-leaning. And as you said, it was you know a little bit more political. Um, but it does seem that they have made a really hard turn into a fully embracing, you know, more wokest ideology uh, and and basically dropping any facade of being a neutral outlet. So why do you think that is? And how do you think that bled into the 1619 project and, you know, the overarching goals you think are behind that? Yeah. You know, I recently heard a a great episode uh, on Ben Shapiro's show where he interviews Barry Weiss, the journalist I was just talking about. And they were talking about how the New York Times had sort of just caved in to the woke ideology of the newsroom. And the newsroom is now younger, it's more millennial, it's more woke, it's more like hard left. And I don't think that's quite right. I think what actually happened is the New York Times saw that its audience is younger, woker, millennial, and more hard, hard left. And they are catering to an audience. And that's in part because of the business model of news today, which is subscription-based. It used to be based in advertising, which meant that essentially the end user is every reader because they're the ones who are contributing quote unquote, their eyeballs to those ads today, 
subscription 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 based models mean that 2% of the readership is actually paying for the product and the new york times knows this and they know who is paying that money and what the yeah. readership looks like so they are basically catering to their audience and they are very explicit about this. If you like dig a little deeper, you will see the 1619 project has been a centerpiece of their marketing efforts. It's it's one of their most important nodes in their marketing mix. And it's for a good reason. And I think that's when you start to ask yourself the question about the 1619 project, which published so many falsehoods, so many inaccuracies that were called to the New York Times' attention multiple times before publication, that you have literally dozens of scholars from across the spectrum coming out and condemning this project because it's actually contorting and twisting history, twisting American history to be rooted in slavery and not liberty. In order to make that case, they're saying things like the American Revolutionary War was was fought in order to protect, protect and prolong slavery in America. And the New York Times' own fact checker in that case, who is a professor of African-American history at Northwestern University, told them, no, this is not true. And you can't <laughs> say that. And they said it anyway. And again, you have to say to yourself, why? Why would they open themselves up to that kind of risk? Why would they damage their credibility and their reputation? And the answer is because they know where the money is. They are feeding that audience. This is for them an existential threat of whether they survive as the number one newspaper in a world in which there is only going to be one newspaper because that's all there is room for today. So I think that's a lot of what it's about. They're following the money and the ideology comes along with it. Well, I think there's an interesting point that, you, you know, we didn't, I don't know if you explicitly said it, but it popped into my mind is that, you know, you talked about the marketing mix of the New York Times, but there's the other aspect of it, which I believe that the 1619 project also, you know, the New York Times has it as an educational supplement that's being used and put into a lot of schools, which I'm sure they're not just giving away for free. So there's a lot of monetary incentive as well for them there to get this accepted yeah. as, you know, true dogma rather than, uh, than propaganda and then have people pay for this, you know, on either ongoing subscription basis or, you know, I'm not sure exactly how they get it in there, but I know it's being adopted mm -hmm. in a lot of schools across the country. For sure. And, you know, in addition to whatever they, whatever revenue might be generated from those deals. And of course, there's also podcasts, there's the inevitable mm -hmm. Oprah TV series deal that's in the works or whatever else is going on. But when you think about what they're doing with the, with the educational system, and this is where it becomes really cynical. It's, you know, I often think like I've got, I have little kids and you look at the cars, the little toy uh, Hot Wheel cars, and you see that they are showing our, my kids these cars because they want them to be familiar with the brand. They want them to grow up and want to buy a Ford Mustang. You know, it's, right. it's really smart. You want to start early because, and this is actually something that's been documented, documented in marketing. It takes something like 20 years of marketing to a person to get them to really feel close enough to that brand to want to buy the thing if it's that expensive as a car. And it's the same thing with the times. Get mm -hmm. them early. Start marketing to them now so that they, these are the ideas that they will feel closest to and most familiar with when it comes time to make those economic decisions when they're adults, when they're adults going to college, when they're adults looking for a newspaper subscription or for whatever else we don't know. But that it's really that... Um, depth of marketing that you get them early, get them young. 
No, that's a great point. And I hadn't really thought about that before now is that, you know, with these educational aspects, I'm sure it's up front and center. The New York Times 1619 Project, the New York Times, this and that, so that these children are becoming, you know, indoctrinated into viewing the New York Times as the epitome of truth, the arbiter of what is right and just in the world. And, you know, to your point as well, you do see the New York Times has its own, I think, uh, maybe it's an IFC or Netflix series, you know, these New York Times Mm -hmm. stories. You do see more involvement in creating television, creating uh, film content. So, yeah, and and it does go along with that that drive. I mean, one of the things on the show I've talked about that's a struggle right now is that you do have a convergence of media outlets trying to consolidate power and the narrative over where the news comes from. And I'm sure the New York Times mm-hmm. is a big component of that. As we see alternative sto- you know, news sources come out and the struggle to squash those. I mean, I think it might even been the New York Times, which had a, a byline on how Substack was evil and had to be you know, eliminated. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on on that, on this, I guess, the convergence and the battle for for truth? Yeah, the Substack example was a great one. Uh, there was a there was a tweet. It was an article about Substack, and the tweet was something about Substack. Or it was Clubhouse, I think, giving um, unfettered access to conversations or something crazy. You're like, why? <laughs> right. Why should it be fettered? Like, what, why is fettered the baseline? And of yeah. course, that is um, something that I've come to think of as uh, as narrative monopoly. They don't. It's not just a business monopoly. I mean, for them, the business monopoly is the monopoly on the narrative. So they need it to be whole and total and complete. That the narr- the only narrative is their narrative because if you're able to put a chink in their armor and ask, wait a second, what if this is not the gospel truth? Then you start to see them as a different thing. You start to see them as not the news, but as this kind of opinion-making machine that is mm-hmm. probably closer to what they are in reality. And then you say to yourself, why would I pay for that? You know, but when you think of the alternative and saying, oh, these guys are telling me what reality is minute by minute. It's like, oh, I want, I, I probably should know what reality is minute by minute. So, okay, I'll pay you. So I think that's a lot of what it's about. They, they're not allowing any daylight there. And we see that in the various conversations that are being carried out in the news as well to say, well, maybe it's an okay question to ask whether masks are really effective or not. Like maybe we should ask, or maybe it's a okay question to think that, you know, maybe the vaccine is not something that needs to be mandated. Maybe it does, who knows, but maybe there should be enough room to just have the conversation in an open manner rather than shutting it down completely, which is exactly what we've seen happen with the pandemic. And, you know, one of the major storylines through the pandemic was about lab leak. And that's something that Mm -hmm. the media had shut down and they started shutting it down in January, 2020. You know, if we remember, we really only knew there was a pandemic around March. I mean, we knew something was going on in February, but around March, there was a pandemic. These people, these major media outlets, including the New York Times, including the Washington Post and NPR and Vox and all the usual suspects were claiming that lab leak was a conspiracy theory. Some of them as early as January, definitely February. And by March, it was all of them. And you think to yourself, there was no evidence either way. So why would they? Yeah. Why would they go so hard on this? And again, why and, and, risk? Yeah, their and unanimously together. Unanimous. Well, that's, I want right. to 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 bank on that. I mean, how often do you think that these these corporations, you know, the New York Times, CNN, NPR, I mean, they do seem to be far more now than ever. And maybe I'm just being naive as far as government influence on major news outlets. But it seems more now than ever, there is one dictate handed down. You know, there's one you hear it all the time, like catchphrases. 
the lab leak or, you know, the walls are closing in, you know, all these instances of the same verbiage being used across all of the major mainstream sources. I mean, do you think that has has come more to the forefront as far as government influence in news reporting? For sure. I think there is, you know, we used to have this tension between government and the press, the, the notion of a free press, the idea of it being free is to be free from government interference. Today, that's not really the problem. I don't think anyone's really worried that the United States government is going to come clamp down and shut the media down. Mm-hmm. The problem is the opposite one. It's a problem of independence or a complementary complementary problem. The Media is not wholly independent. And when we look at the relationship with government, they are in some cases literally in cahoots. And some in some cases, that's the revolving door of government and yeah. media. You see someone who's like editor-in-chief of whatever magazine, all of a sudden they're running communications of the White House and then straight back into the media afterwards. So yep. it's <laughs> this weird coagulation, this weird agglomeration of big business, media, and government. And that is a very, very dangerous triangle. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think the only light there is that we do have independent media. We have Substack. We have Clubhouse. We have podcasts. We have ways for other people to challenge the narrative. And I think that's really um, what gives me a lot of optimism about the future of media. Well, let me ask you this just to, to kind of wrap up and tie a bow on it. As we're talking about uh, what to avoid, obviously, the New York Times, <laughs> avoid, but don't avoid his book. Of course, The Gray Lady Winked, uh, a lot of interesting content in there. But where do you turn now? You mentioned independent media. So where do you look when you want to find um, trusted sources? You know, how do you navigate the news landscape? I mean, I know yeah. for us internally here, we have a buddy of mine who was in military intelligence back in the day, and they taught him to... I almost work as kind of like his own little news gathering spider. So he'll send us something like a hundred links a day. Um, wow. But not everybody has. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. It's like our, our fifteen dollar level in our Patreon. He does it every day. It's crazy. Very cool. It's like every morning. But how do you, you know? How do you do it? How would you, what would you recommend everyday people do to try to cut yeah. through this narrative monopoly that we we're talking about? I think that's an incredibly important question. And I think the answer is to be the news gathering spider, but on a smaller scale. So Mm -hmm. choose two issues or three at the most that are really, really important to you and focus on those issues. Search, do your diligence and you will find good sources. You will learn how to corroborate. You will learn how to cross check. And what you will also do is cut out 99% of the garbage that you're consuming as a media consumer every single day, that is really, as we now know, affecting us psychologically and emotionally in very negative ways. So I think it's really about going on a media diet or or just like cleaning up your media nutrition so that you're consuming media in a healthy manner. And that's really about being active leaning in and rather than being passive and leaning back, you know, we have like got this like great image from um, that movie Wally. I think it was like a Disney or Pixar movie mm-hmm. where it's like these people just kind of like leaning back and like gurgling juice or whatever while they're <laughs> watching TV. It's like, that's how we've been consuming news for the last 10 to 15 years, which is like whatever comes across or, or maybe even longer. Um, whatever comes across the screen, we're just like accepting it's just going in the pie hole. Whereas I think what n- needs to happen today is say, no more, I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to lean in. I'm going to choose the two or three issues that are interesting to me or vital to me. And I'm going to search, I'm going to look. And what you're going to find is that mixed in with independent media who are doing great 
things. There are great journalists at legacy media outlets like uh, Josh Rogan at the Washington Post doing so much important reporting on lab leak and not Mm -hmm. embracing the the major narrative there that it was a conspiracy theory and impossible, but actually going and showing how it was credible, how it was, you know, finding the facts that, you know, someone that like you know, me or you who are not on the ground journalists on a particular beat, we're not going to be able to do that in the way that he is. So I think it's really about going from a, a browse mentality or modality to a search. I like that a lot. I, I think it's a really good concept and a really good point. Um, and also, I would think that when you do that type of thing, you're naturally going to build up a little bit of a, a sixth sense for the bullshit. Um, you know, because right. you're if you're becoming an expert, like you said, on certain topics, if you're doing your research, if you're finding different resources, you're going to be able to kind of spot that and have your radar go up and start pinging when you see bad journalism uh, and you'll be a right. little bit more protected against it. Absolutely. You will. And you will also know y- your bullshit meter will start to uh, beep with certain people and the opposite. You'll start to know people who uh, who, who are bringing you the good stuff and who are really trying hard and they might be at the New York times. And I, I caution people not to throw out the baby with the bathwater because there are great journalists at the New York times and there always have been, uh, and the Washington post and wh- whatever you want to name. That's just the nature of any institution or any organization. You're going to have really great people doing great stuff or even just good people who are trying their best. And there are a lot of those. And I think it's important to distinguish between the rank and file and the ownership. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of rank and file journalists or at least some who are doing good, hard work. And you will learn how to differentiate between those people and the ones who are just carrying water for whoever. And and I think that's an important ability and it's a skill in a way to learn. Yeah, most definitely. Well, I want uh, everybody to find out where they can follow you. What your I know because the Gray Lady Winked is your most recent work. So can you tell my audience a little bit about some of the other stuff that you've worked on that you might have coming up and where they can find uh, all the, I mean, the Gray Lady com obviously, uh, Got that yeah. locked down. Good job on the Earl. <laughs> uh, but yeah, where else? Where else can people find you and read you? Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm really active on Twitter. My handle is Ashley Rinsberg, A-S-H-L-E-Y. And last name is R-I-N-D-S-B-E-R-G. I've got a novel, I'm author of fiction as well as nonfiction, a novel that is inspired by the disappearance and eventual death that's okay. <laughs> Sorry, the my damn of, uh, right in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sign. Um, yeah. Inspired by the disappearance of my best friend in Nicaragua in 2005. Um, I oh, went wow. and five years later in 2010, I went to f- try to find answers to understand what happened and, and why he went missing and why why he was never found alive again. Um, and I wrote a novel that was uh, not about that, but about by those events. And that will be coming out. It's called He Falls Alone. It's coming out um, next year. And uh, I run a podcast called The Burning Castle Podcast. And we talk with change makers who are finding creative potential uh, in a world in chaos. So they're looking around, they're seeing crumbling institutions, and they're finding their own way forward. And in doing so, they're kind of blazing a trail for other people to follow them. They're writers and uh, and. Uh, designers and chefs and athletes and entrepreneurs and everyone in between. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It was a great conversation and uh, it'd be interesting when your, when your other book comes out, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about this. Uh, your missing friend. Sorry to hear about it, obviously, but uh, it sounds like a, a pretty, 
interesting tale and uh, and your experience with that. So again, Ashley Rinsberg, guys, the Gray Lady Wink, check him out, check it out, and uh, yeah, fight the good fight. So Ashley, again, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Brian.